0: I'm Elizabeth Ray.
1: I'm Alistair Stevens.
0: And Tom Cruise is Charlie Babbitt in Rain Man.
1: When we started this project to watch every Tom Cruise movie in chronological order, I have to admit, there were a few that I was not looking forward to. Mm. There were a few that I knew would be challenging. And Rain Man was really the first one on the list that I was yeah. dreading outright. I was
0: going to use the word dread. Yeah, you were dreading Rain Man.
1: I was absolutely wrong. I was I'm categorically so wrong. Not to jump ahead to the end of the mm-hmm. episode, but I was absolutely wrong about this one. I had watched this film when I was maybe 15, somewhere around there, mm. and hated it. Yeah, Hated what Hoffman was doing. Hated what Cruise was doing. And just decided that this was a bad film that I'd never wanted to watch again.
0: Yeah, it's not a young person's film. It's
1: not, no, particularly yeah. not for me at the age of 15, for sure. <laughs> but yeah. Had you seen this film before?
0: No, I'd only seen a couple of sequences, probably when it was just like playing on TV uh, at some point when I was a kid. And so I I was familiar with certain scenes I had forgotten about, but then remembered the dancing sequence. Sure. So that was a real, oh yeah, I've seen this before. It's a very Elizabeth and, sequence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I loved it. I really did. Uh, and I, I, I think the toothpick scene I had also seen before. Sure. But that's really it.
1: The toothpick scene is emblematic of this film. But it is iconic Yeah,
0: film, and I'm not even sure if I had seen it because people had referenced it. Sure. Uh, I happen to know and to have seen a little bit of, of the doctor's office sequence mm-hmm. because, as I mentioned before, that's shot here in Guthrie, Oklahoma. So it came up in one of my film classes as, you know, here are some movies that we did in Oklahoma and here are some classic scenes. And yes. Like, oh, but that's it.
1: It's an odd choice to shoot part of this film in Oklahoma, honestly. <laughs> oh? Well, Oklahoma is not terribly indicative of the Midwest. There's a lot of Midwest out there. Mm -hmm. And Oklahoma is not terribly indicative of what the Midwest really looks like. Oh, you think so? It stood out to me, I must admit.
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: It stood out to me both ways. It stood out to me that Oklahoma is an odd choice. And also the shots of Oklahoma that we use in this film don't really look that much like (laughs) Oklahoma. Yeah,
0: I know what you mean. Because like... You, you almost want to see rolling cornfields or something. Yeah. And yeah, the Oklahoma landscape, while being, of course, mostly flat and the, the portions that they showed mostly flat, aren't like recognizable crops. We, we grow things like milo, which is something I know because I finally asked somebody at the gas station after I had driven by like the 18th field of this random <laughs> crop that I could not identify and didn't look like much. Could have been, you know, some kind of wildflower or not even a wildflower, but some kind of seeded weed. And it's for feed for cows. Sure. So yeah. It's not iconic in the way that cornfields or wheat fields would be.
1: And this, in case you're wondering, dear listener, is why we've never been hired by the Oklahoma Tourist Board <laughs> to record commercials for them. Because <laughs> Oklahoma. I mean, yeah.
0: There's some beautiful landscape in Oklahoma. There there really is. It's just not yeah, the kind that you see driving on a country road in the middle of Oklahoma.
1: Though I will say the cinematography in this film goes a long way toward making those shots just consistently spectacular. I think the cinematography throughout really impressive yeah and we both love a road trip movie right of course so we it's do nice yes yeah. yes and a vegas heist movie which we get sure. for you know a couple minutes right there <laughs> yeah. in the heart of this film <laughs> i could have stood a little more of that i'm not gonna lie i agree we should talk about the elephant in the room though we should talk about the treatment of illness in fiction which is what makes rain man such an important film mm. such an influential film but also means that it is somewhat more dated than we would hope, less dated than I feared, I'll admit that, but more dated even than we would hope. We want, at the very least, I think, to make our fictional worlds diverse and complex, to reflect the diversity and the complexity of the real world. And good-hearted people that we are, we want to promote diversity and inclusivity in our fiction and in our production, in the industry itself. But the representation of illness on screen is difficult, because so much of what makes illness complex, what makes illness realistic, is internal. But we mm. also don't want to slip into just reams of exposition about how a particular person feels, or how a particular illness manifests itself. And that's without even touching on you know the ever-evolving language of illness. Right. That's particularly relevant here. The neurodevelopmental disorder, commonly called autism, including the forms which used to be called Kanner Syndrome and Asperger Syndrome and Childhood Disintegrative Disorder, they are now, as of last year, properly and formally referred to as Autism Spectrum Disorder, ASD, or Autism Spectrum Condition, ASC. That's Mm -hmm. the up-to-date language as of last year. Obviously, this is an unscripted podcast, and if we slip up In the span of the next 90 minutes to two hours, however long we're talking about Rain Man, then A, we apologize, and B, we would like it understood that that comes from a place of ignorance, not a place of a lack of respect or a lack of care or compassion. Mm -hmm. The reason we have to frame our discussion of this film like this, of course, is that this film is most notable for Dustin Hoffman's portrayal of Ray. This was, I think, a genuinely well-intentioned attempt to move the needle regarding the public perception of the quote-unquote autistic savant archetype. Mm. And it did, as Carl Knights wrote in The Guardian back in 2018, quote, before Rain Man, there was no popular conception of what autism looked like among the public or on screen. At that point, autism was an abstraction understood only by dedicated parents or specialized clinicians, Mm. end quote. And absolutely, through the 1990s, Rain Man becomes a shorthand for, well, all kinds of things, some of which are well-intentioned and some of which are absolutely not. Yeah. It also became a, a brick used to beat people who were different. And that's partly the problem here. I think that the film can get points for both being progressive and outdated. Yeah. How did you feel watching it here in 2023 as both a product of its time and a Reflexive piece of commentary on our modern treatment of people with ASD.
0: I was mostly impressed with everyone who was playing physicians or therapists or uh, nurse aides or whatever Mm -hmm. you would want to call it uh, at Walbrook itself and even later in the film. I really liked the language initially that the doctor said about Raymond not processing or expressing emotions in the traditional way. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a really lovely way of putting that, Um, even today. So especially by 1988 standards. And then I like that we just let Charlie Babbitt be a jackass about it. And we feel like, wow, this guy's being a jackass about it. I yeah. think that says a lot.
1: Yeah, the ability to have that character explore the boundaries of Raymond's experience and Raymond's ability to communicate that experience, mm-hmm. I think, is, is really strong screenwriting. And it takes an enormous amount of on-screen charm to be both that guy and also drive the action of the film without the audience just turning against you completely. I think Cruise walks a tightrope in this film. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We really need the girlfriend. (laughs) Susanna, (laughs) is that her name?
1: Yes. 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 We
0: really need Susanna pointing out just what a dick he's being. And then ultimately leaving as she does and should so that he has to arc out of it himself. It's, It's well done structurally.
1: Yes, though, as we'll discuss when we get there, I think the film does her a little dirty at the end by just just dropping our interest in her. But you're right, that's not where the story is. Mm -hmm. She does serve a very useful narrative function and is god knows charming to watch on screen <laughs> we love her Yes, we do <laughs> should we get into the trailer game and then get into our discussion yeah. of this film it's my trailer game this it week is. so you dodged a bullet on yeah, that one yeah this
0: will be maybe a tricky trailer game but uh, I, I have an idea you. i have
1: okay. you know these things are improvised but i have a notion of where this is going to go
0: excellent very smart
1: December 18th, 1988, and it's time to get the gang back together. This time, we're taking the strip for all it's worth. Tom Cruise is the movie star, Valeria Galeno is so hot, Dustin Hoffman is the method man. What critics are calling the heist film of the year, surrounded by 120 minutes of another film that's not the heist film of the year. Ring-a-ding-ding, baby, the strips never looked so good. This year, spend Christmas with Rain Man.
0: <laughs> I do want more heist movie. Now that you mention it, I really yeah. do. Yeah, that
1: that is where the movie sings. I think I cheated, but I'm comfortable <laughs> you did with cheat that. A little bit, but that's yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> the origins of Rain Man go back to 1984, when screenwriter Barry Morrow meets Kim Peek, a 33-year-old mega savant who possessed congenital brain abnormalities and a genuinely incredible memory peak was capable of reading two books simultaneously one with each eye and wow. could retain up to 90% of the book's content indefinitely by the time of his death in 2009 it was estimated that he had complete recall of over 12000 books wow Morrow had already written Bill, a TV movie in which Mickey Rooney plays a quote-unquote intellectually disabled man who leaves the institution where he has spent his entire life in order to experience the world. I can only imagine that that film is somewhat less sensitive than I, Mickey film, Rooney <laughs> alone. Right? Yes. <laughs> Inspired by Kim Peek and the real life inspiration for the character of Bill, Morrow begins to write Rain Man. Kim Peek. We should note, in the spirit of sensitivity, did not in fact have ASD. Rather, he was diagnosed later in life with FG syndrome, which is a truly awful genetic disorder of the X chromosome. So it only affects men, and it leads mm. to congenital brain defects in the corpus callosum, the part of the brain that bridges the two lobes of the brain. Okay. So it's I was doing some medical reading, and it's it's pretty harrowing stuff. Wow. Yeah. MGM producer Roger Birnbaum is interested and picks up the script. The studio, naturally, checks if real-life brothers Dennis and Randy Quaid are interested in playing the leads.
0: Wow, okay, I could see that.
1: But much to the relief of everyone, they pass. (laughs) The script is instead sent to Dustin Hoffman and Bill Murray, though at that point, Murray is going to play Ray, and Dustin Hoffman is going to play Charlie.
0: That's a really different movie that I'm not sure I like.
1: It's a super different film. Yeah. Yeah.
0: How do you feel about... Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. In general? Well, this whole thing now where it's like, oh, maybe they were brothers this whole time. And we're all like, ah, oh, have you seen this? <laughs> i <I'd> have forgotten that. <laughs> yes, you're right. I, I could see a Matthew yes. McConaughey Woody Harrelson. Asterisk excitation
1: this. needed. I think that Woody Harrelson would give a different kind of performance.
0: Mm-hmm. He can get those real puppy eyes going in a way that I think Hoffman can't.
1: Yes, but I think that would be to the detriment of the character. I think that ah, part that's of smart. what yes. makes this film work is Hoffman's method actor commitment to the bit yes. that he never breaks. That we never have a moment of of anything other than Raymond's complete, you know, emotional integrity and, mm. and consistency. I, yeah. I think that that well, works.
0: he's certainly I think a better actor. Forgive me, but yeah, <laughs>
1: I think Woody Harrelson would also agree with you. <laughs> I think you're probably right. <laughs> Bill Murray's an interesting idea, though, particularly at that point in his career. But yeah, yeah. He's, this is 88. He's become
0: such a trope himself, like, like
1: he, he's now, become a caricature. For sure. But you have yeah. to remember the Bill Murray that we're dealing with in 88 is the Bill Murray that just left Hollywood to go and study at the Sorbonne following the success of Ghostbusters. He took himself out. I'm sorry, what? This is true. <laughs> this is a true thing about Bill Murray. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
0: That's amazing. You know so many things. <laughs> <laughs> how do
1: you know so many
0: things? I was thinking, about,
1: how do you know so much about Swallows? The other actor considered for the role of Charlie was Mel Gibson, another person we can be glad mm, passed yes. on this script. Let's talk about Dustin Hoffman. He is born in LA in nineteen thirty seven to Harry and Lillian Hoffman, which makes him twenty five years older than Cruz.
0: I wondered. It yeah. seems too old. Which yeah. is
1: actually no, that's pretty much the uh, the split in the movie. It's it's closer to twenty years, but it's around wow. the right kind of okay. the right kind of age difference. Yeah. Hoffman's father was a prop supervisor at Columbia and worked in the industry for much of his life before leaving to become a furniture designer and manufacturer toward mm. the end of his career. Wow, that's cool. Hoffman's family is, of course, Jewish, though his upbringing is non-religious. He has said in several interviews through the years that he didn't even know his family was Jewish until he was 10 years old. Sure. After high school, he enrolls in Santa Monica College to study medicine, but leaves after a year to become an actor, against the advice of his Aunt Pearl, who told him that he would never make it in movies because he wasn't good looking enough.
0: Wow. Thanks, Aunt Pearl. (laughs) Savage. (laughs) We've all got one.
1: His very first acting role is on stage at the Pasadena Playhouse opposite Gene Hackman, and the two would be close friends for more than half a century. Indeed, Hoffman, Hackman, and Robert Duvall lived together in New York through the 60s while they all wow. struggled to find work, Hoffman struggling more even than the other two, and oftentimes sleeping on the kitchen floor when there wasn't another alternative. Wow! Hoffman finally gives up. He decides that he should teach instead. But then he studies at the actor studio and becomes a method actor, which really works for him. Mm. And he works consistently through the 60s, mostly on stage, building a formidable reputation. In 66, he meets the brilliant Mike Nichols, who wants to cast Hoffman yeah. in The Apple Tree, but has to change his mind when he learns that Hoffman cannot sing. Like, not even a little bit, apparently. <laughs> that part goes to Alan Alda instead and really jumpstarts his career. Nichols, I've never heard
0: of this. The apple tree. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know this one.
1: I don't know it either. Wow. Okay. Only by reputation. All
0: right.
1: <laughs> Nichols remembers Hoffman though, and casts him the following year in a little underground movie called *The Graduate*. Mm. Hoffman was twenty-nine years old. By the time he turns thirty, he has an Oscar nomination for best actor.
0: Wow. He's not playing anything like twenty-nine in that movie, right? Well, mid twenties though. Like yeah. I mean, he's a graduate. graduate so yeah, so, 24, 25 okay, maybe. All yeah. Right. The graduate of course we have to watch in film school that's one of the big new Hollywood of movies. course yeah uh, do you do you like it do you... <laughs>
1: <laughs> she said throwing me a softball over the plate no dear i don't i
0: don't like you it don't either. either i, I really want to this i'm is a supposed safe space. to safe spaces i don't think the graduate is good yeah. you know
1: i think this is true of a lot of the early New Hollywood films in particular, Mm. is that the whole idea of New Hollywood is that we are not going to play safe. We are not going to do what has been done before. We are going to be experimental and adventurous. Sure. And thereby influential for decades to come. But when you are being experimental and adventurous, your films are sometimes not going to work. Yeah. No one can argue that The Graduate isn't an incredibly important film.
0: Right. 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 Absolutely.
1: But yeah, I don't enjoy watching it at all.
0: Yeah. Wouldn't watch again. Had to watch for a grade. That's fine. Glad that I saw it so that, you know, I could learn or whatever it was. But yeah.
1: Hoffman is, though, grateful to Nichols for taking the risk on him. In a 2008 Vanity Fair interview, he said, quote, I don't know of another instance of a director at the height of his powers who would take a chance and cast someone like me in that part. It took tremendous courage. Mm. Mike Nichols, a legend. What's strange, though, is that after The Graduate and after that Oscar nomination, Hoffman's career doesn't really take off. He turns down film roles returning to New York and the Broadway stage. Less than a year after The Graduate, for which he was paid $20,000. Oh, my God. He files for unemployment benefits in New York, which helps to explain why a year later he would somewhat compromise his principles and return to the big screen in John (laughs) Schlesinger's adaptation of James Leo Herlihy's novel Midnight Cowboy. This is the I'm walking here movie. Yeah,
0: Yeah. I haven't seen that one. I don't think it's probably for me.
1: I I suspect not. Yes. (laughs) Uh, That film earns Hoffman his second Academy Award nomination. From there, he goes from strength to strength. He stars in Little Big Man in 1970, Straw Dogs in 71, and Lenny, directed by Bob Fosse, based on the life of Lenny Bruce in 1974, which gets him his third Oscar nomination. In 76, he appears in All the President's Men opposite Robert Redford, and in William Goldman's Marathon Man opposite Laurence Olivier and Roy Scheider. Wow. In 79, he appears with Meryl Streep in Kramer vs. Kramer, for which he finally mm-hmm. wins an Academy Award. Three years later, he gives a career-defining performance in Sidney Pollack's Tootsie, another oh, yeah. film that you want not to watch, you no. guys. Another film that is very influential in its time, but I do not think has held up. Mm. He appears opposite Warren Beatty in Elaine May's famous disaster Ishtar in 1987. And then after Rain Man, he'll appear as Mumbles in Dick Tracy in 1990. He Uh will play the villain in Hook, I forget his name, in (laughs) 1991. And of course, dozens more, Wag the Dog in 97, for which he receives his most recent Best Actor nomination. He's in Sphere in 1998. Did you ever see Sphere? yeah, no, but I remember it. That's a great film. I mean, it's a bad film, but it's really enjoyable. Sure. That is also, once again, directed by Barry Levinson, in fact, the guy who directs oh. Rain Man. Yeah, He's in Jon Favreau's Chef in 2014 and fulfills yeah. what seems like it must have been an ancient prophecy by finally working with Noah Baumbach and appearing in Meyerwitz <laughs> Stories in 2017. <laughs> Overall, where are you on Hoffman?
0: I have to say, I've only seen not even a handful of the films you just mentioned, and some of them I've never even heard of. So I grew up on Hook, obviously. So that was my Dustin <laughs> Hoffman. <laughs> You know, Uh, he's
1: so method that he actually had a pirate ship in Neverland for like that whole summer. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) This is my problem with Hoffman, is that I don't like method Method, actors. Yeah. I don't think that the method is, well, it's it's not in a very real sense. Acting.
0: Right. Yeah. It it seems unhealthy. It's certainly tied to horrific mental health problems with actors that I love and respect or loved and respected respected, after method. Took their lives basically.
1: Terrible, terrible things being done to the co-stars of method oh, actors yes. through the sixties, seventies, eighties in particular. Pardon me,
0: but fuck that noise. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Absolutely
1: not. Yeah, it's extreme it, it, just auto gaslighting, right? Mm-hmm. Like gaslighting yourself into believing that you can be a different kind of actor than you are seems yeah. innately destructive. And honestly- Certainly
0: I, we get extraordinary performances from some method actors. I didn't want to say that. I want to say that, you know.
1: And I would count this as one of them. Yeah, exactly. I think this is a real highlight. I also do enjoy Hoffman in some other things. I think Kramer versus Kramer is one of the big reasons that I wanted to do a Meryl Streep yeah, series. Yeah, I've never and, seen and that one, but I do want to. to do that so, someday yeah. soon. Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot there to enjoy. And certainly some of his late era work where he is a little more playful, a little more- connected to his own on-screen persona and his Mm. own kind of legend, right? I think there's some really interesting work there, too. Since we're talking about the cast, shall we spend a moment in the company of Valeria Galeno?
0: I would spend every moment in the company of Valeria (laughs) Galeno. Oh, my God.
1: Just the most beautiful person.
0: I really think so. Yeah, just just astonishing.
1: While watching this film, there are I don't know how many, a dozen moments where she's on screen and you're looking right at her and then she will lift her eyes and the light will catch them and mm. you will just fall in love with her all over yes. again. Yes. It's unbelievable.
0: Yeah, she's extraordinary. She's in a Netflix series now. Well, rather, it's an Italian series that Netflix is airing uh, called The Lying Life of Adults. I'm not sure if it's still yes. streaming right now, but I watched quite a bit of that, mostly for her because she's just so arresting and extraordinary. So she's still doing great work, I'm happy to say. Yeah. And looking just as gorgeous <laughs> as ever.
1: I started watching that series and realized that there were so many interesting things happening around the languages that are used. Because it's in Italian and it's in Neapolitan, which is this very like oh. specific subdialect. Mm-hmm. And that is an area of real interest for me. But I am not skilled in the Italian. So mm. I wanted to do like Duolingo or something over the summer. <laughs> just to give myself a grounding in what was happening. And then, yeah. of course... Didn't, because really, who has the time to learn anything these days? (laughs) Facts. Galino is born in 1965 in Naples, Italy, to an Italian father and a Greek mother. After her parents' divorce, she spends her childhood shuttling between Athens and Sorrento. Wow. Not so bad, really. (laughs) At the age of 11, she is diagnosed with scoliosis and later has to have a steel rod implanted in her back. Wow. As a part of her care, she spent six months in a hospital in Chicago, which is where she learned English. She becomes a model. She appears in TV commercials. When she's 17, she is cast in her first movie and drops out of high school, breaking the pattern that we've established over the last few weeks of people dropping out of college before they complete their studies. In 1985, she wins a Golden Globe Award for breakout actress. But later that year, she is involved in a car crash, which displaces the rod in her spine, and it has to be removed, and she is bedridden for five months. So she cannot really capitalize on the buzz surrounding that Golden Globe win. In 1986, she appears in Francesco Maselli's film, forgive my Italian, Storia d'Amore, which wins her the Best Actress Prize at Venice. Shortly thereafter, she moves to the United States. She appears in the Pee-wee Herman movie, Big mm-hmm. Top Pee-wee, formative. and in Rain Man in 1988. She appears, unforgettably, in Hot Shots in 1991, <laughs> <Also formative. laughs> and in Hot Shots Part Deux in 1993. She's in Leaving Las Vegas in 95, She's in Escape from L.A. in 96. In the last thirty years, she has averaged—averaged, mind you—a little more than two films per year.
0: Wow, good for her!
1: Always working. In addition to making her own films, too, she was the second choice behind Julia Roberts for Pretty Woman, and the second choice behind Julia Roberts for Flatliners, which is surely enough to make you a little resentful at that point. And she turned down. She was offered the Jamie Lee Curtis role in True Lies and turned it down. (gasps) What a world we could have lived in.
0: Yeah, interesting. I do love Jamie Lee Curtis in that movie, though. Me too, yeah. Yeah. No, she's extraordinary. She is. She's great. She's funny. In 2013,
1: she directs her first feature film, Honey, which I guess in the Italian is Miele. You studied Italian. Mm -hmm. Miele? Does that Uh, sound right?
0: Miele, yeah.
1: Ah, so much better than me. (laughs) Which has won a number of respectable awards, including a special mention at Cannes. She is also in this 2000 uh, Rodrigo Garcia movie, Rodrigo Garcia, the son of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, interestingly. This film is... Things you can tell just by looking at her, which I have never heard of. I have heard of that really? because I
0: think it's such a great title. But I can't, I couldn't tell you anything
1: about it. It's a great title and a knockout cast: Glenn Close, Cameron Diaz, Callista Flockhart, Amy Reneman, all okay. circa 2000. And if that's not enough for you, you are sitting there looking unimpressed. So I'm also going to add unimpressed. In. Look, I'm gonna I'll do this <laughs> deal for you today. You can drive out of here in a brand new 2000 <laughs> Rodrigo Garcia movie. <laughs> because Holly Hunter is also in that film. <gasps>
0: Holly Hunter!
1: She won a Golden Globe for appearing in that film. Okay. So we definitely need to track that we gotta one find it. down. Yeah. So, back to Rain Man. Mm. Hoffman gets the role, he signs up, and he begins as is his way to do his deep research, including meeting the aforementioned Kim Peek to study his mannerisms and physicality. Mm. And that is where we get into some dubious issues of what is being depicted in the film. We're playing yeah. fast and loose with what ASD is is, and what it is not, as previously mentioned, Kim Peek did not have ASD. So we are kind of pastiching right. a whole spectrum of, of disorders here mm-hmm. in the performance. But I think in his defense, the specificity of his performance itself leaves us feeling like we are in very safe hands, I think.
0: I, I think so, too. Yeah, it feels very sincere and very true to the individual of Raymond.
1: Yeah, I think so, too. The studio casts Cruise, of course, opposite Hoffman, and the film is ready to go into production late in 1986, right around the time that The Color of Money is released. At that time, the movie is under the control of Martin Brest, who was hot property after directing the first Beverly Hills Cop movie in 84. Brest would later direct Midnight Run in 88, Scent of a Woman in 1992, mm. Meet Joe Black in 1998. Oh, I like that one. And then kill his career stone dead Uh-oh. with the absolutely calamitous Ben Affleck, Jennifer Lopez movie Gilly. G- <laughs> which took <laughs> seven... I
0: haven't thought about that movie in decades. No one has. Wow. It took
1: $7.2 million at the box office off of a budget of $75 million. Oh no. It is remarkable that Ben Affleck has a career for a number of reasons, quite frankly, but (laughs) that's a big one. Didn't kill his career, did kill Martin Brest's career, unfortunately. Okay. In 86, though, MGM isn't feeling confident. They hire Michael Bortman to rewrite the script, though he doesn't end up getting any credit. They believe in the potential of the script, but not in the draft in front of them. Hmm. Martin Brest is replaced with Steven Spielberg. He too, though, leaves the project because he promised his buddy George that he would direct Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. (laughs) Uh, Better project to work on, I'd say. I would say so. (laughs) Sidney Pollock takes over only to be replaced by Barry Levinson early in 88, nine weeks before production is due to start. Levinson comes on so late. At some point around this time, and the history is a little tangled, Screenwriter Ronald Bass is brought in for another rewrite. He's generally credited with the script as it appears on screen Hmm. and went to the WGA for arbitration, asking that Morrow be removed from the screenwriting credit and instead given story by. But the WGA decided that they would both get screenplay credits, even though apparently nothing, or let's say little of Hmm. that original draft remains on screen. Interesting. Let's talk about Barry Levinson then, because he... He is hot property in 88. Okay. He's born in 42. He starts directing in the early 80s. He meets with some success off of Young Sherlock Holmes in 85. I love Young Sherlock Holmes. I looked at you at that moment because I knew that you would love Young Sherlock (laughs) Holmes. That, though, is just a prologue to his enormous 1987 success with Good Morning Vietnam, the movie that gets Robin Williams the first of his three Academy Award nominations. That thing is a cultural phenomenon. Never seen it. That would be a really interesting experiment. Yeah? Yeah. I have no idea. It was so much a part of my cultural fabric when I was, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. It was quoted all the time. You know, it's one of those films. The first act is just hilarious. It is Robin Williams just unchained. Uh huh. And it's extremely magnetic. It takes a dramatic turn. You know, we're kind of presaging the rest of Williams' career and Mm. the ways that he would interact with drama and comedy oftentimes somewhat uncomfortably the one alongside the other but that first act was so pivotal to my kind of comic sensibility at that huh. time
0: wow okay. Be interesting to go
1: back and watch it it would be but regardless of how it stands up now that movie was an absolute phenomenon and that combination of, of comedy and drama mm. makes Levinson I think the obvious choice yeah for Rain Man When Levinson comes onto the production, the first thing he does is start cutting back the script. Brest, Spielberg, and Pollock had all added to that original concept, making it just flashier and in some ways less substantial, more ambitious, but less anchored in the reality of the relationship between these two brothers. Mm. Levinson cuts it back to the bone, saying, quote, this is two schmucks in a car, end quote. (laughs) I'm amazed they didn't (laughs) use that for the tagline, personally. I do get it, though. Yeah. I think is a really strong move. Mm-hmm. I think it makes the film what it is, but the consequence of this decision is that nine weeks before production, they have a script that has enormous holes in it, like yeah. literal plot holes. How do they get from this spot to this spot? We don't know. There's oh. nothing on the page. This is further complicated because eight weeks before the start of principal photography, with the script hanging by a thread, the WGA goes on strike. Uh yeah. Principal photography wraps in the middle of May. The strike continues until the beginning of August. Mm. So without writers on set and without a complete script to shoot from, Levinson chooses to trust his actors and their sense of the characters. They, after all, have been working on this film far longer than he has. I guess so. Hoffman has been studying and perfecting this character for more than two years by the time we start shooting. So when questions are asked about the plot, why, for example, Charlie doesn't take Raymond back to the institution, they come up with answers themselves and they shoot scenes that are collaboratively conceived and improvised.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Okay. That I think that accounts for some of the repetition in the script that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. But it
1: also gives us these moments of kind of A to B linearity. Mm -hmm. Levinson decides during the shoot that just driving on highways is going to be boring. So they stage the car crash and have Raymond adversely react to it Mm -hmm. so that Charlie decides to take side roads instead. And suddenly the film is just visually much more interesting.
0: Much better. Mm -hmm. But that
1: was just an A to B resolution to a problem that emerged as they were moving forward. Wow. Interesting. They shoot for five weeks in the great city of Cincinnati, Ohio, where (laughs) I used to live, (laughs) and in Newport, Kentucky, which is just across the water, Newport's a very very cool town on the other side of the Ohio I really
0: River. loved the little the shot we got of the bridge and is that the Ohio River?
1: Yes, when they're in the bank looking out through those fantastic it windows behind so them. So
0: cool. Yeah. I was like is Ohio actually cool?
1: Uh Ohio in general, I would say no. Cincinnati yeah. in general, I would say no. But <laughs> the Riverbank district downtown Cincinnati and then as I say across the bridge uh, across the bridge in Newport Kentucky is Yeah, it's pretty cool. All right. Interesting. They then come to Oklahoma and shoot for three weeks in the city, though I couldn't see any of the city.
0: I didn't see anything I recognized except downtown Guthrie.
1: Yeah, and they shoot in the small town of Guthrie, which is about, Mm -hmm. what, an hour north of where we are Mm -hmm. here. They wrap up the shoot in Vegas and in Palm Springs, California. I should mention the cinematographer on this project, John Seal. Uh, an Australian expat who comes to the U.S. to shoot Witness in 1985. He goes on to shoot Dead Poet Society shortly after this film. Loved it. The Firm. So we'll get to oh, circle we'll get back, back to around mm-hmm. to him. Uh, he shoots the talented Mr. Ripley. He shoots Mad mm. Max, Fury Road, and 3,000 Years oh, yeah. of Longing with George Miller. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and perhaps most notably, of course, wins a cinematography Oscar for Anthony Mingala's The English Patient.
0: Oh, Which I don't think we've film. ever talked about, but
1: you must love The English I love Patient, right? love The English right? Patient. Yes. Of course I do. Yes. <laughs> This is our first real opportunity to talk about a phenomenon that has been a part of Hollywood for as long as there have been studios, but which really hits a peak in the late 1980s and continues in a similar form to the present day. This is our time to talk about Hollywood accounting. Oh, no. (laughs) Basically, the idea is this. Movies are not produced in a vacuum, but rather as a part of a studio ecosystem. Multiple films are in pre-production, production, production, and post-production phases all at the same time. So Mm -hmm. your movie, Elizabeth, gets a budget of $30 million. Wow. I like this universe. (laughs) But part of that budget is going to go to the construction of a new soundstage that will then be used for other movies. Right. And it will count as an asset in the future. Let's say that soundstage costs $1 million. But over the next 10 years, eight other movies are going to shoot on that stage. Your studio is going to charge maintenance and tech and rental fees to its own movies that come out to, say, $750,000 a movie. So that's Mm -hmm. $6 million in future spending that is going to take place on a soundstage that you are building for your film. So in a sense, isn't all of that money kind of yours? Aren't you, in a way, spending all of that money? Look, if you take a long enough lunch, Mm -hmm. and if you are casual enough about the truth, Mm -hmm. then you can move that money around. And that happens all the time time. And that's just production costs. If you throw in marketing and distribution and cast and crew and contract percentages that you give to your key players and key actors, if you count overheads and interest payments on what was borrowed to fund the film in the first place, and interest payments on the balance that might still be outstanding at the end of the film and its Mm -hmm. production, if you're counting all of the hideous costs associated with employing a couple of hundred people for two months or four months or eight months or, you know, much longer if you're Stanley Kubrick, if you're talking about legal fees and you're talking about insurance and so on and so on and so on, you can get into some very complicated accounting. Mm -hmm. The upshot of this is that successful films can continue to have extra costs attached to them and extra income sequestered away in other businesses, for example, DVD sales. You can hive off the, the DVD side of your company so that that income never counts against the money made back by your film. And all of these shenanigans can bring us to a point where a riotously successful film can never turn a profit. This is true, perhaps most famously, of Return of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi has never turned a profit, according to its accountants. That's so crazy. The Tim Burton Batman film never turned a profit. Forrest Gump, one of the biggest films what? of the 90s, never turned a profit. Brilliantly, when the writer of the original novel was approached to offer the option for his sequel novel so that they could make Gumpin' 2 still Gumpin', he refused, saying that it would be irresponsible of him to offer an option for a book that was a sequel to a film that never made any money. Wow basically denying that studio a yeah. billion dollars. Uh-huh. Yeah. Close to your heart, according mm-hmm. to Warner Brothers, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, a movie which took more than a billion dollars at the international box office, somehow lost $167 million.
0: That's insane. Okay. It, it,
1: it's, it's untrue. Yeah. Is what it is. On the one hand, to speak in the defense of these terrible companies, you can kind of justify this kind of accounting because studios have always supported less well-performing films with their blockbuster hits. The key to a successful studio, in a sense, is to have enough hits that you make money and enough prestige that you're still respectable and few enough disasters that you don't go under. Yeah. On the other hand, of course, in the real world, this technique is usually used to avoid paying money to people who have worked on your film. Mm-hmm. This is exactly the same strategy, by the way, that here in 2023 leads these companies to gut their online catalogs. It is better from a business perspective for Warner to write and shoot and edit an entire Batgirl film and then cancel it because then they can count that $30 million budget as a loss. In fact, they can probably claim several times that $30 million budget Mm. as a loss. Awful. It is fundamentally dishonest Mm -hmm. and though we've just come through WGA strikes and SAG-AFTRA strikes, there is still a major reckoning ahead of us. Wow. I mention all of this to put into context the fact that Rain Man was shot for $25 million. It was the highest grossing film of the year. It took $354.8 million at the global box office. And that is in 1988 money. That is almost a billion dollars in today's money. Mm -hmm. It is the most successful film In the history of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, a studio founded in 1924, and in 1992, MGM claimed that the film had lost $30 million.
0: That's just ridiculous.
1: Wow. The story of this is enchanting in its Mm. stupid complexity. (laughs) It is wild. Technically, MGM doesn't even produce Rain Man, because it is produced by UA, by United Artists, though United Artists had been bought by MGM in 1981. They merge into MGM UA in 1983, only to split apart again following a restructuring in 1985, at which point they are now independent production wings, essentially owned by the same umbrella company. Shortly thereafter, they're bought by Ted Turner and TBS in a deal that Mm -hmm. involves selling the UA back catalog to the former owners of UA. The deal goes through for $1.5 billion. TBS then immediately buys back that UA catalog for another half billion. This effectively kills UA as a company. Then a year later, TBS sells MGM, killing off that company. And UA announces, from the ashes, a return to film production, now renamed MGM UA Communication Company, the awful logo for which appears at the beginning of Rain Man. Yeah. All of that in the space of like six years. Gosh. I could go on and on, and God knows some of you at home are thinking I've already gone on and on, (laughs) but having companies pay other companies, which are independent suppliers or are distributors but are also part of the same corporate structure... But are also assets in their own right, but also used to be the same company, but are now very different companies, but are run by the same board. All of this oh. is just one tactic that could be used to obfuscate these financial dealings. Let's put all of that aside. Yeah. Rain Man was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Original Screenplay, Art Direction, Cinematography, Editing, and Score at the Academy Ooh, Awards. Score, huh? Yeah, we'll talk about that in just a minute because, wow. It wins picture, director, and actor for Hoffman and screenplay, making it the most successful awards movie of Cruz's entire career, Interesting. <laughs> even though he does not win at no. this point. It's the second most successful movie of Hoffman's career after Kramer vs. Kramer. It is, of course, also credited with moving the needle in the public perception of mm-hmm. ASD, so much so that, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Rain Man becomes a functional shorthand for autistic savants mm-hmm. through the 1990s. The downside to that is that in real life, fewer than one in 200 people with ASD are savants. Mm. So it really restricts and limits the public understanding of what ASD is. Yeah, This film is also to blame for the common misconception that counting cards is illegal in Las Vegas. <laughs> counting cards is not illegal in Las Vegas. Counting cards is not illegal anywhere. You can go and count cards all day long if you like. What's worse perhaps is that the casinos don't need to make a law against counting cards because they can kick you out for any reason whenever and they charge want charge you with trespass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's just remember that the next time you go to Vegas and are misbehaving. <laughs> I can only imagine that lawyers in Vegas make so much money. <laughs> you would think so. As I mentioned in the trailer game, this movie is released on December 16th, 1988, just a heartwarming Christmas movie. <laughs> It is released to a mixed critical response, which I found really interesting, and a modest box office take, too. That opening weekend, it only brings in $7 million. Legendary New York critic Pauline kale thunderously hammers the movie, calling it, quote, wet kitsch, and saying that Hoffman, quote, humps one note on a piano for two hours and 11 minutes. Oh, my God. That's scathing. Uh, compliment sandwich for Pauline Kale, okay? Okay. Uh, <laughs> Pauline Kael was incredibly influential and opened many, many doors to female critics in New York and further afield. Middle part of the sandwich, Pauline Kael was not my favorite person and is often violently out of step with the movies that she reviews and is pursuing her own personal, social, and political agenda. Mm. Other side of the sandwich, other other good bread compliment part, mm-hmm. God, she can write like that. <laughs> Yep. pumps one note on a piano for two hours and 11 minutes
0: <laughs> i should say the film is too long it is far it too long it needs to be an yes. hour 30 yes yeah.
1: which i think is I, I would even give it an hour 40 sure but you have to cut at least a half hour from mm-hmm. this film for it and i think that if you do which you could trivially yeah this would be an all-time classic yeah as opposed to what it is which is a really good curiosity mm-hmm. i think Roger Ebert praised Hoffman, but Gene Siskel gave equal praise to Cruise's performance, crediting both with the success of the film. That is not a common or popular perspective. The critical perspective on this film at the time is very much in praise of Hoffman and also Tom Cruise is there. And I think Hmm. that that is unfair. I think that that is undeserved. Yeah. I am siding here with Gene Siskel, as I do too infrequently in my life, honestly. (laughs) I'm siding with Siskel and and recognizing I think that both of these performances are are pitch perfect and absolutely necessary to the success of the film. Yeah, That modest opening week take that I mentioned increases by 25% for week two and then increases by 64% for week three. This is excellent word of mouth. The film remains in theaters until the middle of June the following year, buoyed by its success at the Academy Awards. There's a really cute story here there's a minor controversy about the release of the film on february the 15th 1989 mgm runs advertisements in newspapers in la and new york proudly proclaiming that rain man is an academy award nominee for best picture the problem is that that nominations list is not announced until later that morning
0: <laughs> oh
1: so there's speculation at the time that there is a leak from mm-hmm. the academy which is scandalous. The Academy does not leak. (laughs) But ultimately, it's decided that MGM were just really, really confident about the film's chances. That success, by the way, sets a pattern for the Best Actor Award for more than 30 years. Since Hoffman, roughly half of all the Best Actor Award winners have won for portrayals of characters who have some kind of disability, which is I mean, unpleasantly suggestive of a kind of exploitation and a kind of experiential tourism Mm -hmm. in the Academy's taste. And also, of course, these unpleasant connotations about representation, even before we get to the conversation about able-bodied actors playing characters with disabilities. Both Hoffman and Levinson, by the way, thanked Kim Peek on stage at the Oscars and screenwriter Barry Morrow gave his Oscar on a permanent loan to Salt Lake City in the memory of Peek and also personally funded the Peek Award, which is given by the Utah Film Center to filmmakers and subjects positively changing the public perception of people with disabilities. So the film has also had a very practical, positive Mm -hmm. influence. One more thing, because there's one person that we haven't mentioned, and it's not terribly important, but it will be in the years to come. The score for this film is written by the legendary Hans Zimmer. Wow. Though you would not know it.
0: No. If for a second, I thought it was Tangerine Dream again.
1: It sounds very simply, yeah. very middle of the road, very... Un- it's not even as good, not even as... Not as even as exciting. Specific yeah. or unique as Tangerine Dream, right? It's just mm-hmm. this synthy wail that continues through the entire film. Zimmer. And the weird like cymbaly drums yeah. too. Yeah, it feels very Angelo Badalamenti. It feels very Twin Peaksy ah, of that album. Not okay. like the classic throwback stuff no. that Badalamenti does in that series, but when Badalamenti is being modern, which he does infrequently, okay, it sounds very similar. It's kind of got <laughs> mm. that that synthy shallowness to it. Yeah. You know? Zimmer will be nominated for 10 Original Score Academy Awards and has won twice more for The Lion King in 1995. Not the songs, but the no, score. No, I'm
0: so glad you said that because it did remind me of The Lion King. Really? Yes. I know this sounds, <laughs> this sounds so random. I'm so glad now, though, because what it specifically reminded me of background music for like level two or three of the lion king sega game when you're doing this whole thing where you're like throwing monkeys or monkeys are throwing you i think you're on the sahara and it's this kind of sound very much so but it kept on reminding me of the lion king so that's wild
1: the score for this film could have been created on a sega genesis right absolutely Absolutely. yeah (laughs) i cannot call to mind any detail of either the sega lion king game Or the score for the Lion King.
0: Well, we had the score on CD, so we listened to it quite a lot as kids. So I do recognize more of the score than probably most people would. Between that and you will not believe me, but completing and defeating the Lion King. I would believe
1: you because as has come up in a previous episode of this very podcast, (laughs) you have the deep lore when it comes to (laughs) '90s video games. You played Descent. It's true that's wild. (laughs) (laughs) Zimmer also wins best original score for 2022's Dune. But that's not why we know Hans Zimmer. We know Hans Zimmer because of Christopher Nolan, because of those incredible scores for all three Batman movies, for Inception, the magnificent score for Interstellar, which might be my favorite cinematic score of all time, Dunkirk, as well as sound producing for The Prestige. But, you know, Zimmer would also work on other things like *Thelma and Louise*, and *Gladiator*, yeah. and *Black Hawk Down*, and *Hannibal*, and *Matchstick Man*. All of those, by the way, all for Ridley Scott. He does *A League wow. of Their Own* for Penny Marshall. He does *Muppet Treasure Island* with Brian Henson. I
0: love *Muppet Treasure Island*. He does
1: that awesome Led Zeppelin sting for the Wonder Woman theme for *Batman vs Superman*, which is then reused and kind of rearranged for the Wonder Woman films. Let's let's look just at his 2009, just a random average year for Hans Zimmer. In 2009, he composes music for The Boat That Rocked, which is a British comedy about pirate radio. I don't know if that even made it to the United States. Mm -mm. But he also worked on Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, the second Michael Bay Transformers movie, Angels and Demons, the second Da Vinci Code movie, Sherlock Holmes, the Guy Ritchie, Robert Downey Jr. one, the video game Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, and of course, Nancy Myers. It's Complicated. Wow. That film does not need a Hans Zimmer score, No, firstly. it doesn't. And secondly, one of these things is not like the yeah. other. <laughs> Zimmer will compose again for Levinson on the movie Toys, An Everlasting Peace, and The Survivor, and will compose for Cruise Again in Days of Thunder, Mission Impossible 2, by far the worst of the Mission Impossible films, <laughs> The Last Samurai, and Top Gun Maverick. So we'll Last have opportunities- Last Samurai
0: has a beautiful soundtrack, too.
1: Yeah, to talk mm. about Zimmer again in okay. the future. And that is all the background on this film. <laughs> We did. And it. I do mean all of it. Let's get into our discussion. I was just complaining last week about those awful 80s title sequences and how I need to be done with them. So thank you, Rain Man, for giving me this incredibly tasteful credit sequence. It's so good. It's so elegant. It's so grown up. It doesn't feel Insecurely 80s. The it way that must so many be of them because
0: have. I didn't even notice it, which it's is what you want a credit sequence to be. Understated yeah. white text.
1: It just does a lovely serifed font yep. even. Just really go. strong. We are introduced to Charlie. Well, actually, we're introduced to a Lamborghini in a yes. crane swinging across the sky of L.A. Interesting start. Which is great. <laughs> yeah. I think. Those 80s Lamborghinis. Are so ugly.
0: <laughs> I completely agree. It's my first note. Eighties cars. Period. So ugly. Period. And so yeah.
1: so beautifully counterposed with the Buick. that we'll yeah. spend most of the film. Yeah, in. which is a gorgeous it's car. Really of nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and does I think speak to a kind of. I don't know. There's an element of rejection of modernity throughout this film. We don't fly. We don't take the highways. It turns into like mm-hmm. an old fashioned kind of trans-America road movie. Yeah. You know? Even when we get to Vegas, we're kind of hitting that 60s Sure, like the Sands and yeah.
0: Yeah, Caesars. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: It, it feels like a film that is harkening back to something mm-hmm. older. And as we're dealing with two characters who are both kind of orbiting the, the emotional black hole of the death of their father mm. and their reconnection with each other. I think there's a lot to be said there about a kind of regress and then progress maybe.
0: Yeah yeah I think too though they get that the Watchmen which is like a very modern device I suppose for Ray to watch TV. Yeah. That like, carries yeah. a little TV around but yes. even it feels like a little 50s TV it feels like a little 50s you know, tv exactly that's really interesting it's a
1: great combination of like very modern technology that feels like product placement yeah. honestly oh, well, <laughs> i'm sure course. they got money yes. from sony for I'm that certain. thing but yeah because of the size of the screen because of the quality of the image does yeah. and because we're we're echoing you know who's on first and we're, we're echoing these right. old traditional even the idea of like game shows mm-hmm. very throwback and 50s yeah that's fun So this is our introduction to Charlie, who is a hustler. He's importing these Lamborghinis in a semi-shady gray market kind of way, I suppose.
0: I had trouble following what was going on, except that obviously he was... Yeah. lying to people and he has
1: taken money to import these cars okay and there seems to be some suspicion over where these cars came from like maybe he's not supposed to be importing them in this particular way mm. and then they're failing right. their emissions Passing test and failing so emissions late 80s yes. i love that mm-hmm. you know here in la there used to be smog not anymore yeah. obviously we're very strict about emissions what is your first impression of charlie babbitt
0: Oh, just a dick, which I think is true. Like, uh, It's really kind of ballsy to come out with this guy who is so unlikable, so clearly just the worst kind of person, such a manipulator, uh, someone who doesn't appear to have any kind of empathy or compassion, but just uses people as a means to an end. Uh, It's a really strong start, and it gives him so far to go. And I think they deliver on it. So I I think it's a strong opening.
1: Yeah, I think this is the second film after The Color of Money in which we've seen Cruz really subordinate himself to a more established and more technically recognized actor. You know, I Mm. think that that putting himself under Newman is easy because Newman's a real movie star and he's, you know, always been Tom Cruise's favorite. Subordinating himself to Hoffman, I think, is a real interesting act of humility, almost. Mm. And the way that he is willing to take the hits in these scenes and never try to exceed what Hoffman is so quietly doing. Again, I cannot say enough good things about his performance in this film. I think that if we are talking about Tom Cruise, the actor, rather than Tom Cruise, the movie star, this I think is a real standout. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure we're going to do a lot better than his performance here.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. There are some lovely moments, there really are, and some really nuanced moments, too, which is not something that I necessarily think of Tom Cruise for.
1: Exactly, yeah. yeah. So we very quickly realize that he is out on a limb, that he is underwater with these cars, he's having mm-hmm. these problems. He has his employee, Lenny, and his girlfriend, Susanna, who is just stunning way too good
0: for him that's the one thing like i love her i'm glad that she's here but also you're so too good for this man and the fact that she comes back is like oh i'm so glad she's back why did you come back to this guy
1: thrilled that we cast valeria galeno in this role slightly unsure yes as to why she is with him Mm -hmm. in this film at all why is she not especially
0: (laughs) since we see them having sex and it looks pretty middling you guys yeah this is
1: not a sexy film no for sure and it's interesting, again, to see Cruz playing this hustler in a much more committed and developed role than the version of this that we got just last week in Cocktail. What What do you mean? This fast on his feet, fast talking, I'm keeping all the balls in the air. Oh, and you yeah,
0: know... trying to get rich quick yeah, and game exactly, the system. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, of course.
1: He finally, finally gives into the incessant nagging of his girlfriend Susanna <laughs> to go away <laughs> on some kind of vacation. Yeah. But on the road, he gets a phone call from Lenny telling him that his father has died. And we...
0: This is nicely you done. turn
1: right there in the road.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's really strong. And again, cinematically so striking.
0: Yes. We love wind farms. Some people don't like them and just see them as a terrible blight on the landscape. But I just find them really magical and strange. Yeah.
1: Even people who are politically aligned with wind farms yeah. often don't like the aesthetics of a wind farm. Right. Yeah. You and I, absolutely in agreement on this. Big fans of wind farms.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> We cut to the funeral, and it's interesting that we cut to the funeral because at this point in the film, we are tight. At this point in the film, there is isn't an ounce of fat on the thing. We're really moving. We're really focused. That is not going to be the case for the entire running time of this film. (laughs) Susanna starts a really nice recurring beat here where she is chafing at being left in the car. Mm -hmm. And then we go to Charlie's father's house and the 1949 Buick Roadmaster convertible. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's so good. It's such Gorgeous a beautiful car. car. Yeah. I love the story that we get here about Charlie stealing the car when he was 16.
0: Yes. And I love Susanna being on his dad's side. I think it's so smart and funny. It's
1: so great because in another version of this film, this would be a heartwarming moment. We yeah. be able to, we're, we're being brought into Charlie's perspective. We're siding with him against the tyranny of his father, but we do not do that in this film. No. It is clear at every moment that no He was a terrible kid. Yeah.
0: And he's like, he left me in prison for two days. Like, son, that is like a county jail at best. That is not prison. Yeah. Yeah.
1: There were two of these Roadmaster convertibles used for the shoot. There's Mm -hmm. the regular one that we get in the wide shots. And then there's one with additional suspension so that it can carry the very heavy camera mounts that we use for when we're shooting interiors. After production was complete, Hoffman bought the unmodified one, Levinson bought the modified one, and then paid a lot of money to have it unmodified. <laughs> I love that. Very cute. Too good a car to let it just go. Exactly, yeah. right? The will is then read, and after a savage letter from his father, Charlie learns that he's Savage, getting... but
0: brilliant. That was my... So good. I think that's the best piece of screenwriting in the whole thing, is the letter from his father.
1: It's really tremendous, and that performance mm-hmm. is... Really quite good from The Lawyer, too. Yeah, I think, you know, we can command our, our core cast here. We can command Hoffman Angelino, and Galeno and Cruz. I think the rest of the cast of this film is kind of shaky. Yeah, I would agree. I don't think there's a lot of, of real strong no. acting. <laughs> Indeed, Levinson himself shows up as the Doctor like sure, and yeah. gives a really mixed kind of performance. <laughs> but it does help kind of cement the idea that Charlie and Ray are, are special, are connected yes. in that sense. So Charlie learns that he's getting the car and the title to the rose bushes, which is a real screw you move. Yes. Everything else is being placed Mm -hmm. in a trust fund. Charlie goes to the bank to charm his way into information about that trust fund, which leads him and us Mm -hmm. pretty quickly to Walbrook, the local mental institution. This is where we learn that the director is the secret trustee, but the money isn't going to Walbrook. Because outside, Susanna is already sitting in the car with Raymond, Charlie's secret brother. Mm-hmm. What do you make of this character introduction for Ray?
0: Perfect. I think it's great. I Isn't love it? that he does the exact same thing that Charlie had done going into seeing the car and just gives all the specs by rote, as he said. By rote. Yeah. yeah. that's It's really beautiful. Yeah, It it's is a lot of fun.
1: such a beautiful piece of echoing there. Mm-hmm. And, and we're really connecting these two. Despite the fact that they don't really look alike. And obviously Hoffman is so much older and, and Raymond is so much yeah. older than Charlie.
0: I, I think in profile there's a similarity, but sure. that's sure. about where it's lost. Yeah. yeah. And even in stature, there's a little bit of a similarity,
1: but neither is a particularly tall man. Yeah, yeah that's true. Mm-hmm. I love what Hoffman is doing in this one. I, I can't emphasize that enough, mostly because it caught me so much by surprise. Right. I was absolutely you were expecting ready to hate it. To just kind of grit my teeth and, and cringe my way through this film, mm. it is so light. Yeah, it is. It is absolutely intentional. You know, there, there, he's doing a lot, but everything that he's doing is so modulated to the need of the scene. It mm-hmm. is a surprisingly selfless performance, which is not something that I associate with method actors. I yeah. usually see that as an excuse <laughs> for the exercise of ego, and I think yes. that that's a pretty defensible position. Honestly, yes. but yeah. this is yeah a, a very selfless performance. I'm aware that we're moving very quickly through the outline of this film. And that's just because not a lot happens. And that's going to become a bigger problem as we move forward, where we start revisiting the same conversational ticks again and again. Yes. Is there something to the repetition in this film? You know, obviously, we see that repetition in Ray's dialogue. Right. Which forces a certain kind of repetition from whoever he's talking to as they have to enter into this kind of circular logic. Yeah. That Ray displays. I think
0: when people are talking with Ray, it works and that's fine. And of course, Ray doing it himself works. But it's the moments when, for example, we we're just talking about the will being read and the rose bushes, where the lines that Charlie Babbitt has sound like Raymond later. And maybe that's supposed to give them like a brotherly, a fraternal familiarity or something. But to me, it just reads as bad script writing, you know? Well, and I wonder how much of a script that says we had. The rose bushes I
1: got though. I got the rose bushes. Definitely the rose bushes because the definitely yeah, thing the definitely. is such a Raymond You're thing. You're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah, that one really jumped out at me too. Right? And does maybe feel like, you know, because so many of these scenes were plot holes in the original script, so we are coming up with this right. material on set, which is why... Some of those extended conversations kind of circle the point a yeah. couple of times before we hit a resolution because Which we're
0: is a thing that happens. Like when you, when you speak with another person a lot, you do start to pick up on their mannerisms and talk back to them. Especially, particularly empathetic people, as actors are, sure. will start to echo back what is being given to them as a means of better communicating with the person. So I can definitely see where that I can definitely see where that happened. I can definitely see it. I can definitely see how that could happen.
1: <laughs> I really do like Cruz in that scene. I do like it less as either a reflection of or an anticipation of Ray. I, I like mm. Cruz's performance. I don't like what Charlie is doing. I guess I yes. can put it that way. Sure.
0: Yeah. Fair enough.
1: Back at Walbrook, we get our primer on what being an autistic savant means, as mm-hmm. Dr. Bruner explains this to Charlie. Raymond needs routine. He doesn't understand money, but we see the light in Charlie's eyes, and that means a movie's going to happen, you Right. Guys. doesn't
0: understand money, you say.
1: <laughs> really? <laughs> It's pretty tight motivation, honestly. It is. yeah. And I like the idea that in the first instance, Charlie's desire is basically to kidnap his brother and force a more equitable restitution from yeah. the trust as, as he sees it. And then the film that we get does evolve organically. I think there's a real kind of late period screenwriter's handbook, like save the cat kind of yeah. desire to establish the entire scope of your film in the first 20 minutes. And we don't do that here. We don't get to the idea of counting cards in Vegas until after we have passed Vegas. Yeah. Which is That is wild. They turn back around. Yeah, I like it. The modern version of this film would be Charlie conceiving of this plot to go and scam casinos right there in the place. Mm -hmm. And I love that it is more ramshackle. It's more shaggy dog than that.
0: (laughs) More shaggy dog than save the cat. I like that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This is when we cut to Raymond's room and we get the practical introduction to how his disorder manifests itself. What do you think of the baseball stuff and the use of, you know, to echo the 1950s preoccupation that this film has displayed, Mm -hmm. what do you think of the role that baseball plays for Raymond? Is it just tokenistic of like the American obsession or is it something more specific?
0: I think it makes a lot of sense for Raymond because of the because of baseball cards and facts. Like someone Mm. who likes to acquire and remember facts and dates and names and places. Baseball makes a lot of sense. Just the statistics alone. Like if you're a a stats guy. It's statistically driven. It's the money ball of
1: it all. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. So for me, it makes sense.
1: Sure. This is where we also learn about his discomfort with physical Mm -hmm. touch. And it's a really great scene. Susanna in particular, I think, is so empathetic, is so lovely. This is when we also have Vern, uh, the nursing assistant, who is so great. Yeah. And demonstrates to us how one can meaningfully interact with Raymond. Raymond is not just a problem. He is a person. Right. He demands and requires a certain modality of interaction, mm-hmm. which Charlie can see, can observe, which Susanna picks up immediately yes. and Charlie just chooses not to. Just refuses. It's yeah To have that structure where the demonstration of this is how we do it, mm-hmm. to see Susanna learning how to do it and to see Charlie refusing it, I think is very strong.
0: Completely agree. Yeah, it's well done. And deeply uncomfortable. I, you, you really are just disliking Charlie at this moment.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: It's a, another reason why I think it's so smart to have Susanna there calling him out.
1: Yeah, I think that's particularly valuable because this is Tom Cruise we're talking about. Do you think that his performance is sufficient to communicate to the audience how unlikable Charlie is or, or how oh, yeah. bad Charlie is? Definitely. Okay, so it's yeah. a kind of you know belt and braces approach here that... Mm. that The performance is doing it, but we also have the structure surrounding him emphasizing that we know that you like this guy and other things. We know that you just saw him in Cocktail and wow, wasn't he dreamy? (laughs) But here he's maybe not a good guy.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) Charlie sends Susanna off with the car and then promises Raymond a L.A. Dodgers baseball game. Uh Uh-huh. And then we get the iconic shot of the two of them, the iconic shots, I should say, of the two of them walking down the drive. Which are beautiful shots. Gorgeous. Mm -hmm. The film really taking its time to communicate this sense of space and distance. It's absolutely mesmerizing Mm -hmm. as it unfolds. I really think the cinematography handles space so beautifully. Mm. We get some very unconventional framing where we're getting just... Acres of sky or acres of countryside just really showing how we're transiting. We do wide shots from much wider back Mm -hmm. than you normally would where the car is just isolated on these country roads. We
0: also have these occasional fisheye lenses. Have you noticed those those ones don't work for me? Those ones don't that's
1: kind of dated. Yes. But yeah. But I think that that comes from a same but I think that that comes from the same cinematic desire to emphasize space and isolation. I think so too. Except not isolation, because the men are together the brothers are together you know
0: yeah yeah it's beautifully done it's it's a gorgeous movie and it doesn't have to be because the subject matter is so serious and because the story itself is so compelling to make it also lovely i think is
1: a good choice we're really doubling down on charlie as a terrible monstrous human being through this part because this is when we this really is just into the hotel yeah well yeah no but even when we get into the hotel and he's trying to arrange everything Mm -hmm. he's he's completely separated from Susanna it's completely incidental but it is demonstrative of character when he says that he's ordering a pizza and asks her if she wants pepperoni and she says no and he orders it anyway yeah because he doesn't care he's kind of obeying the social formality of asking right but not even listening to the response
0: while she's moving the bed to the window for Raymond like doing the physical and emotional labor for him
1: yes and and being empathically connected absolutely to Raymond in a way that Charlie is is disconnected from everyone Mm -hmm. But at least that means that he has bad sex.
0: Right? This this is the thing I was saying earlier, too. Yeah. It's an odd sequence anyway, and I don't think that we need it. And it's I, I can definitely understand being in the throes of passion and not recognizing that somebody has wandered through an open door.
1: <laughs> but this was not throes of passion. This is like- Second film in a row where we are just underneath acres and acres of sheets.
0: Yeah. I don't mind all the acres of sheets covering- Valeria Galino. I We get her in the bathtub Later She stands up Out of the bathtub And you're fully expecting To get fully nude that Woman move. And in, mm-hmm. The
1: way that the camera moves When she gets out of the bathtub So smart and lovely Masterful
0: Yeah Yeah
1: Absolutely gorgeous
0: And I'm so grateful for it It's the kind of thing We were talking about With Color of Money When we have Mary Elizabeth Antonio Naked in the, ba- in the bathroom And she doesn't need to be We don't have to have The actor do that We don't have to see Her body in that yeah. way To understand that Somebody else is and does.
1: That's the other thing about the scene in the bathroom when she, when Susanna gets out of the bathtub mm-hmm. is that we do not sacrifice an ounce of intimacy right. in that move right? despite never showing her naked body. Yes. It's, ah, it's genius. It's absolutely a, uh, a scene that I'm going to reference in the future as the proof that you do not need to necessarily depict nudity in order to communicate intimacy.
0: I completely agree.
1: What do you think of Raymond being confronted with adult sexuality? We don't really play very hard on raymond being infantilized or yeah. being being anything other than an adult mm-hmm. we are generally quite respectful of the fact that he's a grown man right what do you think of this this interaction it's obviously you know uncomfortable
0: yeah i think in this sequence it doesn't work at all and i don't think we need it especially because we do it so much better later in vegas Sure. sure. in vegas when he meets with iris And we see how little he knows and how little facility he has with uh, romance or sex. And then Susanna kisses him in the elevator. That sequence does so much more than this one does. I don't think you need it.
1: I agree. Absolutely. But I don't think that the intents are the same. I don't think that this is supposed to be about opening Raymond up to a world of sexual desire as much as it is about making him seem like a threat, making him seem the way that we stage it and play it, mm. I think that we are waiting for him to react badly, waiting for him to interrupt the proceedings, not just with, you know, a polite excuse me, could you not have sex very loudly while I'm in the next room, right. but with a real, you know, transgressive kind of interruption, mm. a socially transgressive kind of interruption. I think that we are supposed to be uncomfortable by Raymond's intrusion into this moment, but not uncomfortable for Raymond, uncomfortable for. Charlie and Suzanne.
0: Oh, I did not feel that.
1: It's not something that we're going to do later in the film, yeah. but it, it feels like maybe we're supposed to be on edge a little mm. bit to me.
0: Especially again, since the door was open. Like, uh, uh, to, to me, again, it just shows how, how much little Charlie
1: cares. He just know. doesn't care. Yeah. yeah. The next morning, we go to a diner. The first of, I don't know, 17 scenes that we get in a diner. Love a diner. It made me want pancakes. So I'm bad, sure it guys.
0: did. Yep. Thin, crispy pancakes. Pancakes
1: and diner coffee. Mm, you want to go out after this recording? I kind of do. <laughs>
0: Butter that's in like you gotta peel back the foil to get sure. to it. Sure, I just want it.
1: This is the first time that Raymond demonstrates his savant abilities out mm-hmm. on the road. This is the memorization of the waitress's phone number, which is oh yeah, really cute. <laughs> and it's cute. very well ordered and a type of the <laughs> storytelling. There. We are unfortunately going to hit this beat six or eight times mm-hmm. before it really sticks, but it, it's good and enjoyable. It's basically enjoyable every time we do it. Yeah, we maybe don't need to do it so much. <laughs> This is also, we've talked in this podcast before about smoking on screen. Cruz does smoke in this film, but he is so often holding a cigarette or has a cigarette in an ashtray throughout this entire diner scene, which is a long sequence. He has the cigarette in the ashtray in front of him. It is burning. It is coiling smoke into the shot. He does not touch it the whole time that we're there. This is the first time that I'm noticing a change in our attitudes towards smoking. Yeah, Which 88 makes sense. yeah, Yeah, that sounds
0: about right. And he's the you know bad guy. So bad guy smoking will go yeah. on for a long time.
1: Charlie calls Doctor Bruner, but he is unwilling to cut a deal. Raymond, meanwhile, demonstrates his ability to accurately count with great speed. This is the the toothpick scene that's mm-hmm. very famous. With Bonnie Hunt with Bonnie Hunt, yeah. the brilliant Bonnie Hunt, just showing up for a minute. Love it. At the airport, Raymond refuses to board the plane, citing airline crash statistics. This is a four minute scene that was cut from the film by a number of different airlines when they wanted to show the film in flight. (laughs) Which is kind of understandable. Levinson, Bass, and the president, the then president of the WGA, all Mm -hmm. formally protested the cut. And let me tell you, the airlines did not care and continued to show the cut version. The only airline that did not edit this film when they showed it in flight? Mm -hmm. Qantas, of course. Of course. Qantas, naturally. Qantas has not lost a jet. They have not ever suffered a crash, not since 1951 when they really moved into commercial air flight. Mm -hmm. They are the only airline in the world without a crash on their records. That's amazing. Isn't that crazy?
0: It is, yeah. It's also so strange, though, because air travel is so much safer than being on the road. And then w- he talks about highway traffic later. Yeah. But yeah. it is interesting that Raymond will not get into a plane, but will get into a car.
1: Yeah. I would be fascinated to know if this was in the original draft of the script or mm-hmm. in one of the full drafts of the script that was, it was extant before Levinson came onto the project, yeah. or if this was another plug intended to fit a whole. <laughs> well, why don't they just fly? Yeah, Damn, that's a good question. <laughs> Ah, uh, because like then our though, movie is twenty five right. minutes. <laughs>
0: I like it though, because it does add more like humanity and personality to Raymond, because it's not just all about facts. It, there's a feeling and an emotion Absolutely, about it too. Yeah. That That's there's a really just good point. fear, you know?
1: I also love the performances in this entire sequence. Mm-hmm. I think that Cruz manages to walk a great line between yes, being just a raging asshole, but also being a smart hustler being a yeah. smart negotiator yeah. kind of you know finding a path finding a tactic finding a strategy that, that it's good stuff mm-hmm. so this is our motivation for the entire second act of the film is is now going to be a road trip instead of a plane flight yeah. i guess which is fantastic Much what better. a strong choice i love driving i love yeah. road trips i, I don't know. care about flying I've, I've never been like scared in the air mm-hmm. but yeah not not a choice i would ever willingly
0: not make. enchanted either sure yeah.
1: I would I'm take quite a enchanted by
0: flying. I like twenty-four
1: it. hour road trip rather than flying. Wow.
0: Well, yeah, I can't agree with you there. Although I would go with you, but yeah, if I'm just going on my own, especially, I want to fly. Let's get there. Yeah.
1: Shortly thereafter, we have our second beat in this, you know, organizational <laughs> maneuver yes. where we have the crash on the highway. A really distressing scene of mm. Raymond walking in front of the car. I think just so hard, so so emotionally taxing on the audience, but you know, obviously, intentionally so. Yeah this worked for you
0: yeah i like ramping up the emotions i suppose and forcing charlie to take care of
1: his brother yeah absolutely yeah we then have to wait out the rain in a hotel and this is where Mm -hmm. the cinematography just goes to town this is so lush and beautiful so artistically arranged Mm -hmm. it's it's slow certainly in terms of our plot we do lose propulsion We do that itself is part of the plot. We can see Charlie's rising frustration there. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of taking three hours to get to LA, it's going to take me three days. It is not, by the way, a three-hour flight from Cincinnati to LA. Not even now. (laughs) It's like almost double that. But you know, we can can Mm forget. Maybe they had faster planes in this imaginary 1988. (laughs) There was an excellent tailwind. Maybe he had a jet from Top Gun that he had just. (laughs) (laughs) We don't know that this isn't Pete Mitchell. (laughs) We don't know for sure. I do think it's a fair criticism of the film from this point on that it becomes somewhat episodic. It becomes a string of events. And we move from one to the next simply by observing a cut. Simply yeah. by, we're done with this scene now, so it is going to stop, and then we will pick up at our next. We do Raymond crossing the street. Sure, in, the crosswalk. and Guthrie. Guthrie, yes, mm-hmm. with the don't walk sign, which is echoed later, which is a really nice bit of screenwriting. Mm-hmm. But it is a self-contained moment unto itself. We then get the doctor's office. As I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, this is Levinson himself stepping into his own film, right. which is... Uh, not perhaps the strongest choice. I don't mm. think that this completely works. Does it work for you? Is it, is it warm? I think they're aiming for warm. With the doctor? Yeah.
0: Uh, I don't think I get warm. No. I'm also really sensitive to bad Oklahoma accents, which this guy has. <laughs> so I don't love that either.
1: See our previous episode yeah. on the outside.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But it's okay. Yeah. I I don't mind it, I suppose. It's just that this whole part of the movie just feels very choppy. I'm not certain why we do this sequence now and why we don't learn this back at Walbrook with Vern.
1: Yeah, I don't know.
0: Yeah, and I liked Vern so much more.
1: It does remind me, you've never seen Wayne's World 2, have you? <laughs> I know this sounds like I'm making a crazy jump, but I'm making a very literal jump. There uh-huh. is a scene in Wayne's World 2 where uh, Wayne is trying to get to a wedding to stop his girlfriend from marrying the wrong guy. Sure. And he pulls up at a gas station and the gas station attendant is supposed to just like tell him where the church is. Mm-hmm. And he does. And Wayne turns to the camera and says, look, I know this is just a bit part, but can't we get a better actor than this guy? And then Charlton Heston comes on set (laughs) and they shoot this gorgeous monologue. Gordon Street. Oh, yes.
0: Gordon Street. I once knew a girl who lived on Gordon Street a long time ago when I was a young man. Not a day passes. I don't think of her. And promise I made, which I will always keep that one perfect day on Gordon Street. That's uh, five blocks up, two over.
1: Thank you. (laughs) And the punchline is cutting back to Wayne, who just has tears streaming down his face. It's really well done. And it just makes me (laughs) wonder, can't we get a better actor than the director of this film? Just for this. We should mention the guy also who is uh, sitting in the waiting room talking to Ray about the Pony Express. Mm -hmm. That is not an actor. That is just a guy who was already in that waiting room when they turned up to shoot. And they're like, oh, yeah, his name is Byron P. Kavner, a local Guthrie Mm -hmm. resident who was just there the day that they showed up to shoot. Mm -hmm. And they were so taken with him. They just invited him to stay on set and talk to (laughs) Dustin Hoffman. I like it. So none of that stuff about the Pony Express is scripted. It's all just (laughs) off the dome.
0: Amazing. I've been in that building, actually. You have? Yeah, yeah. When I went up to Guthrie recently to tour uh, a distillery at Wonderfolk, that building is the same building, uh, I believe, ju- It's, it was either, I took in a lot of information that day, and as you might imagine, and drank a lot, a lot of, of booze. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> However, it was either the upstairs of the building I was in, or across the street from the building that I was in, but I believe it was the upstairs, uh, was cool. that room where, we, where they shot that sequence.
1: If only you'd watched this film a few weeks earlier, you would have been able to... I don't know. Take what. a selfie or something, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Do your best Tom Cruise impression while you're <laughs> out there. <laughs> we get this sequence, the next event, the next Pearl in our String of Pearls plot is at the farmhouse because Ray wants to watch his show. So they go to this farmhouse and kind of try to con their way in and then just tell the truth and are welcomed into the bosom of this family. Mm-hmm. I don't know that this accomplishes anything, but again, we're getting these gorgeous wide shots. We're getting a lot of character. We're getting some great performances. Does it work for you? Does it do anything?
0: It it does something, but I think that something that it does, I don't like. It makes me uncomfortable. I feel it feels exploitative, in a way that I can't quite put my finger on. Of like,
1: let's gawk at the poor people, poor American families. Yeah. yeah. No, I I feel I that don't too. Like it. Yeah, it is a little, it's a little unfair.
0: Yeah, she seems so harried. I, yeah. I just get the sense that her husband's a real piece of work.
1: I, which is the sense that you're kind of led to. Not necessarily by this scene in isolation, but we know this farmhouse. We know this family. We've seen people like this in movies before. And that's the stereotype. That's the cliche. And invoking that cliche for like warmth and wholesome Americana while also echoing those moments of this is a bad situation. Mm -hmm. This woman is is not living her best life for sure. Right. Yeah. It's a little careless. It's one of the few times I think that the film really makes a tonal mistake. Yes, yeah. yes, I would agree. Night falls, and they stop at another motel. I love the motels. Of course. <laughs> I
0: just like a, a kind of dingy roadside motel. Sure. I want it to be clean, but I just kind of like it.
1: This is the point at which Charlie's credit card is declined. We can feel the yeah. rising pressure, very slowly building pressure mm-hmm. in the back <laughs> yes. of his mind. <sighs> this is also the scene where we try to really do some close textual reading on who's on first. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a riddle, that it is not a puzzle to be solved. It is just a joke. Just a joke.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Everything about this, obviously, I love close reading. Obviously, I love like textual interpretation. Obviously, I love like that kind of fine semantic distinction between what is a riddle and what is a joke and, and how are you supposed to approach a text. And I know that I'm overthinking this even as I'm explaining it <laughs> now. I love this stuff. It doesn't completely land for me. When we get to the end of the film and we are using the told a joke kind of mechanic between these two characters it feels like it kind of comes out of nowhere doesn't it
0: certainly trying to explain who's on first and why it's a joke doesn't actually work i do like the idea that charlie is trying to teach raymond about humor or understand his sense of humor or to make him laugh and later that works for me when he does make him laugh and it's not a joke it's just an observation yeah is cute. I like it. It's just situational comedy, exactly, you know, yeah. <laughs> and that that works. And that, and I like the pride that Charlie seems to have and having made his brother laugh. But yeah, here it's just repetitive. I don't need who's on yeah. first anymore. We've done it a lot.
1: <laughs> you yeah. know? who's on first specifically? I think has just been drained of its comic potential yeah. now. It's just been invoked and referenced so many times mm-hmm. that there's just not a lot of juice there. Yeah. Which Going... is too
0: bad because it was, of course, a very brilliant. Skit. of course yeah
1: but these things don't live forever they don't no. they, they they can't generate comedy forever there's a certain kind of you know familiarity breeds exhaustion yes i think when it comes to comedy it's wild that in the uh short-lived aaron sorkin comedy studio 60 on the sunset strip yeah Who's on first is invoked by one of the professional comedians on that show as the finest example of comedy. That is what he shows to his parents in order that they might understand what sketch comedy is, which is a bewildering choice. That is a show that does not understand comedy. (laughs) Much more importantly, though, this is the sequence where Charlie begins to connect Raymond with Rain Man, this imaginary friend that he's referenced earlier in the film this all of is that is gorgeous luminous. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah yeah the hot water coming into the tub is shot so well it's so simple Yeah. but the tub being kind of grungy the steam rising up like it does mm-hmm. and the real terror that we get from raymond and then to find that he was not the one that was hurt yeah. but that he hurt someone and that's why it's so traumatic to him is really really beautiful all of that yeah and charlie's saying it's okay i'm okay i'm okay i'm not burned really really beautiful so human Mm -hmm. it makes me frustrated that we just spent 20 to 40 minutes rehashing the same things over and over again you know that this is part of why i wish that the movie held together more because i think you're right i think i would revisit it much more and watch it but there's just so much that doesn't hold together or things that just feel time-wasty, like places where I'd get up and do laundry and then come back, you know?
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed watching it this time, but I do feel that the middle of this film will be frustrating if I return to it with any kind of increased frequency or regularity. I think I'll maybe take another 10 years before I watch Rain Man again, and and then I'll love it again because I will have forgotten all of the the stitching in the the middle of the film, you know? Mm -hmm. This is when we start to alter charlie's character just just a little and we do it so slowly and we do it so incrementally in a way that itself is a little frustrating but is also kind of indicative of real character growth that people don't have in real life moments of lightning bolt revelation they change more slowly Mm -hmm. than that we begin this by having charlie call Susanna that night then the next day we learn that the lamborghinis have been repossessed and that charlie is now eighty thousand dollars in the hole yeah it's it's pretty good Mm mm-hmm I love that there's no deception in the movement of the plot. There's no sleight of hand here. He's not going to make it to L.A. at the last possible moment and right. save the day. He, he blew his chance. He's lost it. Mm-hmm. We're done now. But the lights of Las Vegas are on the horizon. <laughs> and we're going to drive right through Vegas. Yeah. What is the purpose of this, do you think? What is the purpose of driving down the strip, doing the whole like welcome to Vegas baby kind of razzmatazz? Yeah. Then leaving the city, going to a diner on the other side, on the western side of Vegas. And then having the moment of realization, wait, yeah. <laughs> didn't I just see a casino somewhere? Yeah. Where was that?
0: <laughs> I don't know. It's weird. Like, it is, it's, isn't it? It's, it's kind of fun.
1: Um, I, I like
0: the turning around
1: and going back. Like structurally, from a from a script perspective, that is a funny joke. Yeah. Right? You can imagine that being written in the script. They drive through Vegas, wind up at a diner, come back. That, that, yeah. that works. That is a mm-hmm. funny joke for screenwriters. But when it takes 10 minutes on screen. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. More fat to trim, I think. Yeah. We finally have Charlie understand Ray's savant abilities, Mm -hmm. first through his memorization of the numbers on the jukebox in the diner. Yep. And then the somewhat iconic scene, I think, of him playing cards on the trunk of the car.
0: Yes. Yeah. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, we're in Vegas, and all of a sudden, the film has pace, and all of a sudden, there's all of this energy and spark. And
0: And we're in matching suits. Where do we get those?
1: He goes to pawn his watch. That's right. They pawned the watch. I remember him pawning the watch, but it
0: didn't occur to me that they would buy suits with it. I guess I just thought... It would go straight to money to yeah, gamble. No, but that's, that's okay. where we get our suits. That's nice. And yeah, and yeah these and, snazzy snazzy yeah. suits, which are
1: very terrible suits.
0: Oh, they're so cute though oh. that they match. I mean the eighties is a tough time for fashion. We've talked about
1: this, but top yeah. buttons, you guys. I can't get behind it now. I couldn't get behind it in eighty <laughs> eight. That's true. Not it's a tough. fan of top yeah. buttons being done. No. Up. Unless you're wearing a tie, of course. That, that's absolutely of course. fine. Mm-hmm. But top button, no tie. Yeah. <sighs> Doesn't work for yeah, me.
0: always makes me think of I don't know, collared priests or something. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something monastic about it.
1: There's actually the whole makeover sequence, too, where we get our haircuts and, you know, they look sharp. They They do look sharp. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then they get to work on the casino floor, but nobody can count a six-deck shoe. Uh (laughs) This is just great. It is. It's a beautiful sequence. The way that they're attracting all of this attention, the way that everyone is, is... gathered around them in support of this, you know, nefarious pursuit because it's a casino. So even if they were playing completely straight, it would still be a semi-nefarious pursuit. Yes. But yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. And because, you know, the house always wins, especially at Blackjack. So to have to see somebody taking the house is exciting. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Bad odds at Blackjack. Mm -hmm. This is also Cruise at his most, you know, conventionally cruisy, I suppose. Like this is him at his twinkliest, Twinkle charm. Yes, indeed. Mm Mm-hmm. So armed with Raymond's autistic savant superpowers, they managed to clear $86,000 in a in the really casino. short
0: space of time, it feels yeah. like. A few hours even, it's like an evening. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> I
1: like good cards. The subtlety as well of everyone on the casino floor clearly being clued into the fact that they're doing something. They don't know what it is. Right. They can't prove that they're cheating, but something is happening. Mm-hmm. And we get that like rising tension surrounding them as they're making more and more money, raking in more and more chips. It's yeah. a really nice sequence. And from there, it's a hard transition to an eerily quiet bar. And all at once, the energy just kind of dissipates. Mm. This is where we first meet Iris, Mm -hmm. the sex worker. Yes. Who gives a really nice performance. I think think. so, too. Yeah, I like her. What do you think of the film's decision to pair Ray with Iris? What do you mean? Do you think it is thoughtful and well-intentioned to pivot into exploring Ray's relationship with women, race sexuality?
0: I mean, yes, ultimately. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And I like Iris. I like how gentle she is, uh, but also forthright. Um, I like where this takes us. I, I like that they make a date together, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, she clearly can see, I mean, anybody can, who's talking to Raymond can see that there is something different about his mental facilities, I suppose. Uh, and she, she, does, I don't get from her in the little bit that we get that she's, you know, trying to hustle this guy, no. but that he's a nice guy and yeah. that everybody needs human touch from time to time.
1: Yeah. I don't know how concerned she is with his niceness as much as he is clearly a potential client. Sure. Yeah. And would probably be a fairly easy time for her.
0: Yes. Yeah. I would imagine so.
1: I'd love that the film doesn't make her, you know, the awful, evil, predatory nope. sex worker. There's no kind of concept of... Of anyone really predating upon Ray, except, except Charlie. For Charlie. Yeah. yeah,
0: exactly. But we're
1: yeah. really, we've cracked the icy surface of his character too now. This is when we go up into the pretty fantastic, albeit in the late 1980s kind of way, that the penthouse suite, Yes, where they're going to spend much of the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. And he apologizes. He thanks He does. Ray, which is such yeah. a lovely scene.
0: Yeah, he's trying to, to really emotionally connect with Raymond. I think it's... Kind of sweet to find him be frustrated by that uh, when he asked for a hug and it freaks out Raymond and he is suddenly a little brother again. And it was just like, you know, I, I just wanted a hug. I just wanted to hug you.
1: Yeah, there is perhaps a possible interpretation of Charlie's character in this part of the film where it's real easy to be generous when you're winning. It's real easy to be kind <laughs> yeah. to others when oh, you've sure. already got everything that you want. Yeah. And a pathway to even more. Because Mm -hmm. presumably they are not going to rest. They're not going to stop winning in casinos just because they've dug him out of his debt. But it is very sweet. I mean, again, literally the moment we leave the casino floor, the film slows down again. The scene with Iris is deliberately very slow. But a lot of these scenes are going to feel perhaps a little slow, perhaps a little ponderous, and perhaps as though they take too much time Mm -hmm. as we move toward the end of the film. For example, Charlie is about to teach Ray how to dance, which Mm -hmm. is a really lovely scene, but... You know this is a metaphor that you have implanted in my brain. This idea that you put things up on a whiteboard just to kind of corral all of your ideas. Oh yeah, and you ought not to use that whiteboard as a script. Mm-hmm. But there are aspects of that in this film.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah. You, I mean, it makes sense when you say that somebody went through and cut out a bunch, or, or people went in and added a bunch to kind of like shore it up, and then somebody else came in and took out a bunch because yeah. there are moments where it feels slow, but not with purpose. And there are moments when like big events happen, but like we don't we don't need to go to Vegas. I'm glad that we do. I enjoy that part of the movie quite a lot. But it it does kind of stand out as yeah the, yeah this strange. Now we're doing a casino heist in a high roller suite. It is it feels like a different movie.
1: Yeah, though Vegas I think is maybe more integrated into what few plot mechanics we actually have in the course of the story, right? We we have to get some money. We right. have to motivate everything that's happening and then we have to resolve that motivation. So it works from that perspective. Mm-hmm. But yeah. The tone just is so different now all of a sudden. If yeah. you made it to the end of this film and Iris wasn't in it and we didn't have the dancing and we didn't have the kissing in the elevator, you wouldn't feel as though anything was missing per se. I don't think you would necessarily feel like, oh, it's such a shame we right. didn't really get to wrestle with, with Raymond integrating himself into like a romantic social yeah. context. I think the film as a whole, even though most of these constituent parts are very good, Mm -hmm. the film as a whole suffers from maybe just having too many of them. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think that's right. You end up feeling a little bit like you're flipping through the scrapbook of this road trip that these guys took. Yes. There's just not a whole (laughs) lot of connecting tissue.
1: Yeah. Do you wish that we kept Susanna with us for the entire Road trip?
0: I mean, we we can't. I get that we can't. And I understand the reasons why. And I think it's good that we don't because it would be way too easy to rely on her to mm. be the emotional connection between these two men and to do all of the emotional labor for both of them. Removing her means that Charlie has to grow up a little bit and yeah. has to change an arc in a way that I don't think that he'd be able to do if she was right there by his side.
1: That's a great observation. I think you're absolutely right. From there, we have Susanna, in fact, show up again. (laughs) We get Mm -hmm. the romantic sequence with Raymond. What do you think of the kiss? The kiss is controversial. I didn't know that the kiss was controversial until I was researching this. But the kiss is a very controversial moment.
0: I think especially in the hands of Valeria Galena, who is so generous and kind in this scene, uh, as well as being so beautiful and sexy, but not, again, in any way predatory, not... uh, not seductive either, but just yeah, generous is the word
1: that comes to mind. Um, Beautiful and sexy, but not sexualized.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think At that's At least right. not in an Sensuous, objective. I would yeah, say. Yeah yeah. 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 I love when she Which says, is really what
1: the kiss is about, right? right. It's about sensuality and experience more Absolutely. than it's about having sex. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I love what she says about like you're tasting something very sweet and very soft. Yes. Like just very so good. good. Shut up. Yeah. It's excellent.
1: The next day, Raymond drives the car down the drive, which is a nice moment. We get that. uh, Love the the drive in front of the Bellagio
0: fountains. Gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Back in L.A., we drop off Susanna because really that's enough girls in this film. Uh, Thank you so much. And Charlie shows Raymond around his apartment. We get the playing of the Abbott and Costello tape. And we understand that Raymond is now maybe seeing this more as a joke rather than something that is to be solved, which Mm -hmm. is, yeah, as we discussed, like in its way, a very nice evolution of his character. Charlie meets with Dr. Bruner, who tries to negotiate, offering Charlie $250,000 just to never see Ray again. And of course, this was where the film was going to end up. Of course, we were eventually going to do this. How do you feel? Obviously, it's not a surprise and nor is the resolution. How do you feel about the emotional aspects of these scenes and of these characters at this point?
0: Uh, I mean, I like that Bruner came all that way. It shows not only, I think, professionalism and loyalty to his patient, but a real Care for Raymond? Two hundred fifty thousand feels like a real lowball to me, though. I gotta say, it's like <laughs> three mil, right?
1: It is. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: two fifty feels low. So that's interesting.
1: And do you think it would have had additional emotional power if Brunner had just offered him the half that he yeah. wanted from the beginning? Yes. I yeah, me too.
0: Yeah, or at least close to it. Like even mm-hmm. seven fifty mm-hmm. is like significant cash, and not that two fifty isn't, but just. Out of three million, it feels
1: low, lowballing. balling. Right yeah. no, huh? yeah. oh, I hear that.
0: Yeah. At this point, the movie moves quickly again, I feel. Quickly,
1: but somewhat erratically. Yes. Yeah. We have Charlie asserting that he has resolved the anger that he feels toward his father. Right. And expressing gratitude for the realization that he has a brother in the first place. Mm-hmm. But from there, we start zagging in order to set up everything we need for the final emotional turn of the film we have the moment the the one part of the production design that does not work for me at all is Raymond putting what is apparently a smoke bomb inside his toaster oven. Yeah,
0: yeah. The amount of smoke
1: is Mm -hmm. outlandish. Yes. I like the sequence well The sequence
0: is good and very effective, I think. And obviously
1: Charlie coming to the rescue and and beating the uh, smoke alarm to death. Yes. (laughs) Which is the only
0: thing that you can do with flippant smoke alarms when they're going off, it seems like, yes. Mm -hmm.
1: But the decision there to demonstrate that perhaps Raymond ought not to be living by himself. Mm Mm-hmm. Coupled with the much more internal emotional beat that we get during the meeting with the psychiatrist, where he is just incapable of expressing a preference, he's incapable yes. of taking charge of this kind of demand for autobiographical determinism, right? right? Like he, he's called upon to decide what he wants his life to be and he can't. Right. That's so much more damning. And we don't have to motivate that through. This physical endangerment aspect, it seems to me.
0: No, I I would agree with you, except that it did seem to be really important to Charlie to know that he could not take care of his brother and and to just realize Ah. how much more challenging it would be than he thought. Like Just because they're cracking jokes now and enjoying being together is not the same as as being an alert parent figure for the rest of your life.
1: The easy is easier. Yes. But the hard will remain as hard. Exactly. Yeah. That's a
0: nice way of putting that. Yeah.
1: I'm just remembering, we're, we're well past this spot now. Is it perhaps when they're leaving the bar when Charlie says to Raymond, the don't walk sign is on? He kind of echoes this experience from earlier in the film to oh, tell him to stay put. Right. Yeah. Such a lovely moment of characterization. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah that is nice. Yes. And the, that they start to have like a little language together.
1: And then we have this touching moment of parting but in a much grander sense Mm -hmm. real reconciliation right we have this moment when they are together we have as you said earlier this recognition that they're telling jokes to each other now Mm -hmm. from raymond which is so adorable right strong and and really speaks to the intimacy of this relationship Mm. and
0: the wonderful forehead touch which is perfect it's perfectly done i it you don't need a hug you don't need there's you don't need much it would
1: feel so fake it would to have a full hug at that point to do something more expressive and traditional right no it's you're absolutely right it is no perfect and Mm -hmm. for him to call charlie his main man yeah echoing the conversations with With, like you are mm -hmm. now trusted you have now proven yourself to be a safe space for me emotionally i mean that's what it all comes down to Mm -hmm. right in the end it's it's really terrific and beautiful even the last scene as he's getting on the train yeah, we never compromise it. We never compromise it. We never break Ray. Right. To deliver Ray Ray. Mm-hmm. a bigger emotional catharsis for the audience
0: mm-hmm. or for Charlie. Who exactly. Doesn't deserve it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah.
1: His integrity throughout is just spectacular. Mm-hmm. And I could say the same for Cruz too. I think his integrity as Charlie, though he arcs much more than Raymond does. Yes. He's still the same guy. He's yeah. still like kind of an asshole at the end of the film. <laughs> yeah. But now he understands more, at least about what is important.
0: Yeah. I think it's just a lovely film in the end. I do think it's a little bit bloated in places. There's fat to trim, as we've said before. But ultimately, it's a gorgeous film. I mean, I I think it has a really good heart. And I like that it starts somewhere that's so off-putting. I like that Charlie is... (laughs) <laughs> Such a dick as I said before in the <laughs> beginning, and then turns into a real person and a real brother yeah. here at the end. It's
1: and nice. it really doesn't put a foot wrong in terms of that emotional arc. It's a little jagged, it's a little seesaw. Right. Mm-hmm. We progress and then regress yes. a little bit. But that's yeah, more a function of the improvisational nature of the middle act of the film yeah. rather than a product of any kind of and cruises performance or you know, the concept of the film as a whole. Right. A really good hearted movie. I think so too. Yeah. Where do we put it on the list? I think there are only two possible, uh, yeah, possible spots.
0: It's going up there.
1: It's either number one on the list right above Top Gun mm-hmm. or number two on the list right below Top Gun. And here's the argument yeah. as I see it. Uh-huh. This film is good hearted. It is profound. It is uh, really beautifully studied. It is a character piece. It demands yeah. so much more of Cruise than any of the films we've watched thus far. Certainly
0: and much more critically acclaimed as well.
1: Absolutely true. And, you know, at least as commercially successful, and if not as cinematically influential, at least as culturally influential.
0: Yes, I think that is true.
1: But Top Gun is a machine.
0: Yeah, well, and Top Gun is fun, and I don't know that Rain Man is fun. There
1: are certainly moments.
0: Not not that being fun makes you a better movie, but it might push you higher on my personal list. Like,
1: No, I, I think that's a fair aspect. Sure. Yeah.
0: I think at basically any point, someone was like, hey, you want to watch Top Gun? I'd be like, yeah, put it on. <laughs> Hey, you want to watch Rain Man? I'm like, ooh, uh, you know.
1: Oh, I'm, I'm going to need three hours in a quiet room. I'm yeah. going to need yeah, a journal yeah. and a pen. Yeah, yeah. No, I do hear that. And I'm interested in how freely you would recommend Rain Man to someone who hadn't seen it or hadn't seen perhaps any Cruise movie. Would you feel comfortable recommending it now in 2023?
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, any intelligent and good-hearted person is also going to see the date and see that it's 1988 and there's no way to argue that it's not a progressive film for its time and it's e- even now the people who are upholding the highest standard still seem to be doing a pretty damn good job i mean if you want to just put aside terminology that's really the only place where i think it falters
1: well it sounds like we're feeling very positive i think so <laughs> Is it going yeah top of the and i'm list? so
0: glad cuz i know again that you were dreading it so it really good. was yeah. I really was
1: and and i've spent a lot of time since watching the film kind of considering whether or not this was just like a nice surprise or (laughs) if it really is as good as i feel that it is and yeah i would have no trouble recommending rain man if you are interested in cruise as an actor sure i think rain man is is an absolute success if you're interested in cruise as a movie star much less so yeah and i don't think whether it goes above or below top gun i don't think there's a lot of clear water between the two no if we're factoring in Influence, if we're factoring in iconicity, if we're factoring mm-hmm. in, you know, the Cruise movie star persona of yeah. it all, yeah. because we're not going to echo this performance very often in the rest of Cruise's career.
0: No, I don't think so.
1: But I will leave it to you. First, second, what's your feeling?
0: I, again, I have to put it on second. Yeah, I, I, I like it very much, but I just think Top Gun is such a blast and it's such. It's such a movie. I don't know how to put it. You know what I mean? It's like wow, interesting. It's a yeah. blockbuster in the a way.
1: Movie film distinction yeah. coming to play here.
0: Yeah, which I I just always like.
1: I feel very comfortable with that. But again, to take nothing away from the quality of Rain Man as a yeah. film, like a really wonderful piece of work.
0: Yeah, I agree. And the other thing is that Top Gun is just tight as a drum. Like mm. the storytelling, it never drags. I know that you feel it does maybe a little bit. I, I think that that's the point where we're sitting in grief as opposed to- No, I absolutely just, agree. Yeah, yeah wallowing it, the storytelling. It slows down.
1: But right. it slows down very deliberately. And yes. even then, it is like maybe four minutes. Yeah. It is so brief. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is just enough time. We'll do a beat with Iceman, and we'll do a beat with Meg Ryan, and then we'll wrap yeah. it all up and get back on the road. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it really, it, it is mechanical in a way that Rain Man is in many ways the opposite, right? Yeah. It is a much more studied and thoughtful and improvisational performance. Mm-hmm. So that's it, number two on the list, and that is going to do it for this week's episode of The Last Star in Hollywood. If you like what we do here, then you can head on over to our Patreon page. It's super familiar. You know what it looks like, or do you? That's right. (laughs) Because we have a new Patreon page with a new URL. Actually, it's the same old Patreon page. It just has a new address. Mm Patreon.com slash next word. Next word, you ask? What on earth is that? Well, that is our new podcast network. We need a podcast network because we have a whole new show. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth, do you want to tell people about Stars and Swords?
0: Sure. So, <laughs> <laughs> Stars and Swords is uh, Alistair's new show where he is going through genre fiction, footnoting genre fiction, as a matter of fact, uh, going through some old favorites and some hopefully new favorites. Absolutely. Yeah. And starting with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the C.S. Lewis classic, which is perfect for this time of year, I think.
1: And so brief. And I get so I to cover brief, the entire book nice. in three weeks. It's yeah. going to be great. Yes.
0: That show will function almost like a podcast book club. So, reading ch- a certain chunk of chapters each week, and then <laughs> going through to do a nice close reading, a lecture format, and yeah, everybody will get to join in, do Q and A's in the Discord.
1: That is, yeah, the part of it that I'm looking forward to most. I'm I think sure it's probably going to have a robust discussion attached to it. So, That's of course, wonderful. so you can find more, including the first real episode over at starsandswords.com. And if you like that show too, then yes, supporting us at patreon.com slash nextword helps us continue to make more shows. And now we don't have to worry about shoehorning all of our ideas into The Last Star in Hollywood podcast right. name. We, we can expand a little bit, do I more like things. So mm-hmm. it's very exciting. And of course, the new show and everything we do here at The Last Star in Hollywood and Stars and Swords, everything we do here at Next Word is possible because of the wonderful support we've already received and the support we hopefully will continue to receive mm-hmm. Including the support from our superstar tier patrons, including Leslie Skipa, Louise in Dallas, Megan Lauder, and Phoebe. You guys, thank you so much. I would run a heist in Vegas with you anytime. (laughs) Next week on the show, well, we dodged one bummer, but uh, I'm super not optimistic about (laughs) next week, you guys, because we are going to close out the 1980s with Oliver Stone's 1989 anti-war biopic, Born on the Fourth of July, for which Cruz receives his first Academy Award nomination okay. for Best Actor. I'm sure it's going to be very good. I'm sure it's going to be very I'm grandiose. Sure. I'm sure it's going to be very Oliver Stone. So yeah, that'll and be then a fun we'll just watch *It's a
0: Wonderful Life* afterwards and
1: <laughs> get back on the Christmas just round train. it out. Yes. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for listening. It has been, as always, a blast. We'll see you next week.